Well, I want to uh, introduce our next speaker. Uh, Dr. Mark Harris is pastor of First Baptist Church in Charlotte and also president of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. Uh, you, as some of you have already commented, may have seen him on television uh, over the last uh, 18 months, couple years. Uh, he led in North Carolina uh, the marriage amendment that was voted on uh, last, um, uh, last May, and, uh, and that passed, and he was a great leader on that. Uh, Dr. Harris is one of those uh, people that if you're involved in Baptist life at all, like I am going to conventions and things like that, you, you see him on the stage and uh, you hear him speak. Uh, and there's a tendency, I think, for, for us sometimes to think about when someone pastors a really big church, to think about them being distant, uh, think about them... Um, you know, being someone up in an office somewhere and that sort of thing. But as I've become more involved and got to uh, really see Dr. Harris's heart, uh, see his passion to uh, win people with the gospel, um, see his passion for the churches of this state, um, that's kind of went away for me. Uh, because, you know, when you're in meetings with folks and you see, uh, and trust me, Baptist meetings aren't always that pleasant, uh, but you see their, their heart as a pastor and a leader. Uh, it's very impressive. And that's the reason I wanted to ask him to come uh, tonight. Uh, not just because he pastors a big church or because he leads our state convention, but because I've seen his heart, his heart for people. And uh, that's what I wanted him to come and share tonight. And so, Dr. Harris, you come and preach for us. Thank you. Everyone. Well, thank you, Brother Michael. I'll tell you what. Um, it's been a blessing for me to be here already and uh, to hear the message as uh, Brother Michael just uh, challenged us and, and really laid a foundation for, uh, for this church and for this community uh, for what God could do this weekend. I'll tell you, I look at the, the lineup and I feel kind of like the, the mule at the Kentucky Derby. I'm just honored to be here and uh, in the midst of all of this and uh, hearing Brother Michael and I know uh, Brother Marty Jackman is coming and I also know that, uh, that that was more than a bunt, my brother. I believe he got at least a double or a triple uh, already this evening as he uh, blessed us by, again, just reminding us of where true revival is established. And uh, it is established by God. And it will be established through His Word. And uh, it will make a phenomenal, phenomenal impact. And I, I thank you for just sharing that tonight, brother. And let me just say again, uh, greetings to you from uh, First Baptist Church, Charlotte. And greetings on behalf of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. And it's certainly a pleasure to be able to share with you and, and uh, to work alongside you to make a difference in the state of North Carolina and uh, throughout America and around the world where uh, all of us as Southern Baptist and North Carolina Baptists are working together to truly seek to uh, carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. So uh, thank you for all that you're doing and, and for the opportunity of coming and, and sharing here uh, with, with you tonight. I want to ask you to take your Bibles, if you will, and I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we started tonight in Isaiah, and you don't have to go far to find your way over to Jeremiah and um, I guess that's going to leave Brother Marty tomorrow night preaching through Lamentations. I hope so. And I hope you'll tell him that, that you're expecting a message on Lamentations tomorrow evening. But I want to share with you for a few moments there in 
Jeremiah chapter 8. Before, before we get there, I want to tell you the burden that God's laid on my heart tonight for, for this meeting of, of this theme of awake and how important it is for us to awaken as a nation. How important it is for us to awaken as believers. Because we are seeing things happen in our nation. And we are seeing things happen in our communities that many of us would have never dreamed even some 10, 20, 40 years ago. In fact, not long ago, I learned something that I had never understood. I was trying to to just sort of trace back some of the things that have, have happened in our country and some of the steps that we have taken and to seem to move further and further away from God. And I ran across something interesting that I had never discovered before, and that is something that happened on July 2nd, 1954, in this country that few Americans understand. And not only do they not understand what happened on July 2nd, 1954, but they haven't understood the impact that it had that greatly changed the pulpits of our nation and I believe have greatly changed the generation in which we've lived. What happened on July 2nd, 1954 that changed the scope of America? Well, it's interesting because it really didn't seem to happen in North Carolina, and yet we got affected. You see, back in 1954, there was a a Senate race that was taking place in the great state of Texas. And in that race was Lyndon B. Johnson, the United States Senator from Texas, and he was running against someone that no one had ever really heard of, a young state senator out of the state senate of Texas, and it was supposed to be a slam dunk for Senator Johnson. All except for two men who determined that they didn't want Lyndon Baines Johnson back in the United States Senate. One of those men was an oil man by the name of Hunt that you might have heard of. Another was a publisher in that time known as Gannett that you might have heard of. And those two men working together began to spread the word throughout Texas that Lyndon Johnson was soft on communism. And in 1954, with the rage of McCarthyism that was happening around the country, suddenly Lyndon Baines Johnson saw the polls that had him way up here begin to shift, and suddenly this no-name young senator from the state legislature in Texas was evening things out. Well, if you know much about Lyndon Johnson in history, you know that that wouldn't sit very well with him. Lyndon Johnson got on a plane and he flew back to Washington. He walked onto the floor of the Senate on July 2nd, 1954, where the United States Senate was simply debating a tax overhaul bill. A tax bill to overhaul the tax system in 1954. Lyndon Baines Johnson offered an amendment that day on the floor of the United States Senate, and his amendment basically said this. It would forbid any 5013C nonprofit organization from speaking for or against 
or writing for or against any political candidate or political party in this nation. And that day, on July 2nd, 1954, without any hearings that would have revealed what that would do to First Amendment rights, without any conversation and discussion what that would do to the pulpits of our nation, without any conversation, that amendment was passed to that bill. And whereas for the first 166 years of this nation, pastors and preachers and churches across this land stood firm on the Word of God, would call out individual leaders for the positions that they took, would help inform and educate and share with their parishioners the stands and the issues of their day. And suddenly, with that one vote, a cloud began to be placed over the pulpits of this nation. For some reason, people began to develop the mythical idea that pastors somehow came to an agreement that they would not speak on policy issues or political candidates and in exchange for their silence that the churches of this nation would remain tax-exempt. That was the myth that began to spread across the land. But ladies and gentlemen, let me be very clear with you tonight. Churches being tax-exempt was developed in the minds of our founding fathers, not some political hacks in Washington, D.C. You see, while the Johnson Amendment in 1954 told churches and told pastors that they could no longer speak for or against, which took away their First Amendment rights, The pulpits and the pastors, for the most part of this nation, have stood paralyzed. You want to know what's interesting? That was nearly 59 years ago. And in 59 years, may I tell you tonight, that not one single church has lost its tax-exempt status because of that amendment. Not one single case has been taken to the courts. Oh, it's not because folks haven't tried. You see, there stands today attorneys across this nation who believe in the Constitution, who believe in the Word of God first and foremost, and are waiting and hoping, just praying, that maybe the IRS will take a church to court where it will work its way all the way up, and once and for all, that Johnson Amendment will be ruled as it should have been ruled, unconstitutional. But it's never been challenged Because the IRS refuses to enforce it. In 2008, it was, I believe, 33 pastors who stood in their pulpits on what was called Pulpit Freedom Sunday and delivered a message naming issues and naming candidates. They took that sermon and they mailed it to the IRS. 
You know what the response was? They all got a letter from the Internal Revenue Service saying, thank you for your message. In 2009, 84 pastors took the plunge, preached a message from the Word of God on the issues of our day, called out candidates, mailed their sermons to the IRS and said, here it is. You know what they got? A letter from the Internal Revenue Service saying thank you for your sermon. In 2010, it grew to 100 pastors. In 2011, 539. Last year, in these United States, on what was called Pulpit Freedom Sunday, over 1,500 pastors took to their pulpits in this country and and proclaimed, thus saith the Lord God, and shared the truth, and then mailed that sermon to the IRS. And just like before, they all got letters that said, thank you for your sermon. I told someone, I said, if nothing else happens, whoever's having to listen to all those sermons at the Internal Revenue Service may be getting saved. That may be the first pocket of revival that we begin to see in our nation. You say, Mark, what's your point? My point is that when the revival that your pastor shared about tonight begins to happen. And those results that he described begin to take place. You and I are going to find ourselves and we're going to find our culture and we're going to find our nation drawing closer to God than we've ever been before. If I were to ask you tonight, are we closer to God today than we were Yesterday, as a nation, what would we say? If I were to ask you tonight, are there more signs of righteousness and the righteousness of God in our nation today than there was 10 years ago, 30 years ago, even 50 years ago? What would we say? Well, of course, we would all say no. And that's an easy one to answer. Why? Because 50 years ago, we weren't taking the lives of innocent children in their mother's womb. 50 years ago, we weren't even considering that the citizens of this state and other states would have to vote on whether marriage was between a man and a woman. Come on now. 50 years ago, we would have never seen a federal government that spent and spent and spent till there's $17 trillion of debt that we want to pass on to our children and our grandchildren. Fifty years ago, we weren't telling high school students they couldn't pray at graduation. And we weren't telling students they couldn't even write a verse on a sign for a pep rally. So let me ask you, If it was 59 years ago, since July 2nd, 1954, and 50 years ago we weren't experiencing those things that we're experiencing tonight, well, as Dr. Phil would ask, how's that working out for you? How's that working for you? I would say it's not working very well. I would say 
that since our pulpits have been paralyzed, to speak freely on the issues and the leaders of our day, we have seen changes that have been destructive. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are areas that we have seen some good change in the last 50 years, particularly in the area of race relations. I mean, listen, we have seen welcome and needed change. Segregation was ended in the last 50 years. Civil rights were recognized. And Dr. King's dream of men and women being judged not for the color of their skin, but for the content of their character has made great strides. And desperately we needed that. But all in all, I think everyone here would agree that we would have to admit in our nation there's not a closer relationship to God today than we had in previous generations. Which brings me to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, including verse 4, begins to set the stage for something that you and I need to see tonight. O.S. Hawkins, president of Gadstone Financial Services, pointed out that our generation, our generation, far too often lives by the what questions of society rather than the why questions of society. There's a reason for that because answering the what questions is a lot easier than getting to the nitty-gritty of the why questions. For instance, if you look at the issue of teen pregnancy, we don't want to ask why is there teen pregnancy. We don't want to ask why is there a problem that's developed teen pregnancy, but we would rather ask questions like what? What are we going to do about it? And so we decide it's easy to answer the what question. We'll just distribute condoms in public high schools. That should solve the problem. But we don't ask the why question that gets down to the foundational root of where things have gone desperately wrong. Well, the prophet Jeremiah lived in a day, I believe, very similar to ours. You say, how so, Brother Mark? Well, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had been blessed. They had prospered. Just as you and I have been blessed. Just as you and I have prospered, perhaps beyond anything you ever hoped or imagined. And yet, Israel had forgotten their God. Just as you and I tonight live in an America that has forgotten her God. Now as you read the book of Jeremiah, you find a man of God that is so burdened, so broken hearted. And it was all so much so that he became known as the weeping prophet. But let me tell you something about Jeremiah. As you and I discover here in chapter 8, he wasn't into the what questions. No. Jeremiah was all about asking the hard questions. He was all about asking why. And tonight, I want to show you four of the most amazing why questions that I've ever seen 
that spoke to the day in Jeremiah's time and so readily speak to your day and my day that we're living in in 2013 America. You notice he says in verse 4, Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they, not ri- will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? All right, get your pens ready. Here's question number one in verse 5. Here's the first hard why question Jeremiah raises. Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. Would you underline verse 5? Because right there you find the question that all of us need to be asking each other. You find the question that needs to be asked to the American public tonight. You're finding the question that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. The question that needs to be tossed out to our generation. Why has this people slidden back? Why is there a perpetual backsliding with Jeremiah speaking the word of God gives the upfront simple answers you see them here they are they hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return There it is. That's amazing. Because as miserable as they had become, and by the way, the children of Israel were miserable at this point. Listen, as unhappy as they were, as as dissatisfied as they were, as unfulfilled as they felt, and and, and is, is that not where so many in our nation are living tonight? Let's just be honest. The misery level pretty high in our culture this evening. The number of unhappy people, it's on the way up. The number of people I encounter in Charlotte that are dissatisfied, on the way up. The number of people I encounter every day that seem unfulfilled, on the way up. But get this. No matter how miserable, unhappy, dissatisfied, and unfulfilled they were, they weren't yet desperate enough to face the realities and turn back. They weren't desperate enough. As a young pastor in the early 1990s, when I was at Center Grove in Clemens, I remember going to a Southern Baptist convention in Houston, Texas, and, and uh, Dr. Ed Young was the president of the Southern Baptist convention, and I remember Ed Young giving an address there at that convention, and he made a statement that I'll never forget as long as I live. I still hear it ringing in my ears today. 
Dr. Young said, if we're going to see revival, if we're going to see spiritual awakening ever come to America, it will not be through prayer. When he said that, you could almost have heard a unanimous, (gasps) as all the air was sucked out of the Houston Convention Center. And then he finished his thought. If we're ever going to see spiritual awakening and real revival come to our nation again, it will not be through prayer, but it will be through desperation. For it will not be until a man or a woman get desperate enough that they begin to pray the way God calls them to pray that they will ever see spiritual awakening and spiritual revival we see the very same thing right here with Israel they're miserable they're dissatisfied but they're not desperate enough listen don't get me wrong they still had some spiritual craving in their life but their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the lust of the flesh their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the lust of the eyes. Their spiritual nature couldn't compete with the pride of life. In fact, if you look at verse 6 and 7, the the prophet Jeremiah, look, he he is looking and listening for the slightest sign of repentance. He says, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. Get this, last sentence of verse 7. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Jeremiah says, I listened and I looked everywhere. I was listening for the the, the slightest sign of repentance. I'm even calling for it, but no one's taking notice. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. The most disheartening part of this particular verse is the Spirit of God had fled. The Spirit of God had fled. But the people had just enough religion and just enough religious activity and just enough religious practices that they didn't even recognize that the Spirit had fled. Are you okay tonight? There was no longer power in the people of God. And frankly, they really weren't even inclined to seek better anymore. They had reached a point that they were just living life on a lower plane 
and had become very satisfied at that place. For the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to read verse 8 through 13, but I'll just challenge you sometime tonight before you go to bed. If you'll read verse 8 through 13, all it is doing is just describing the culture of a people who once knew the hand of God's blessing and prosperity, but they turned their backs on Him. You know the question that you and I need to be asking tonight of ourselves and the question that we need to be asking the American public is simply this. Are we desperate enough? Are, are, are we desperate enough? Are we desperate enough? You see, the second why question that that Jeremiah asked, I think, is a question that you find in verse 14. You might underline it in your Bible. It's it's another why question. And and, and I think it's the question that has to be asked to the pew in America. That's where you're sitting tonight. The people that are sitting in our pews all across our landscape need to answer the question found in verse 14. Here's what it says. Why? Why? Do we sit still? Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. And let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink. Because we have sinned against the Lord. Do you see what Jeremiah is saying in verse 14? He's saying, why do we sit still? He's asking you in in, in the pews. He's saying, let's gather together. Let's assemble ourselves. Knowing that the judgment of God is upon us. And let's come in silence before the Lord. Last time I checked the church, silence is the last thing we want in our lives. Go to most of our homes. We've got to have a television or a radio going in every room. Why? Because silence is dangerous. We don't like silence. And yet we find here that he is saying that let us enter the fortified cities. Let us be silent there for the Lord our God has put us to silence. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a time. This is not a time for the rationalizations of our sin. This is not the time for us to come together and try to make excuses for our sin. This is the time for the people in the pew not to come together and try to explain our sin. To somehow 
blame it on something our daddy did to us or blame it on something our mamas did or didn't do or to blame it on something our grandparents or our great-grandparents. This is not a time that you and I are to somehow come with our excuses and come with our explanations. No, 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 no. This is a time where we come together standing on our belief in the faith in Christ that we claim, standing on our belief in the truth of God's Word that we claim, And listen, it is not a time to demand anything from God. No. See, most of our prayer meetings in America are not much different from the average Christmas wish list. No. Not now. Not in this day. It's not a time to demand anything from God. But it's a time when in silence you and I should just fall before Him broken. Seeking His mercy. Jeremiah said, why, oh, oh, why do you just sit still in those chairs? Why, oh, why are we just sitting still in the pews? It's time to come together in repentance. It's time to come together confessing our sin. It's time to come together and yield our wills and our plans to His will and His plan. See, can can I ask you tonight, Those of you that are sitting in the pews of our churches in this country? Are we, we, are we willing to submit to God's judgment and go ahead and confess that our sin is the cause. That's the question. God's judgment's here. Quit making excuses and rationalizations and trying to explain that it's not. The real question is, will we come before Him and submit to that judgment and confess our sin was what brought it? It's not easy. But it's the only way we'll get our nation to be closer to God today than we were yesterday. Are you willing to do it? There's a third why question real quickly I'll ask you to underline and it's found down in verse 19. He says in verse 19, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion. 
Is not her king in her? And then here's the why question in the middle of the verse. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images with foreign idols? Why have they provoked me to anger? See, this is the question. This is the question that would be asked to the, to the American leadership, the American leaders, the American policymakers, because it's a question, why have they provoked me to anger? Please hear me tonight. The people of God were still trusting in lying words. Notice it says, with their carved images, with their foreign idols. They were still trusting in liars. They were still trusting in lying words. You say, what do you mean, Brother Mark? Listen, they were still rationalizing that since the temple of Jehovah and the throne of David belonged to them, therefore, they should be safe and secure from the judgment of God. Well, you know what? They were wrong. That's not the case at all. And what I've recognized in our own nation is while I am extremely grateful for our founding fathers and while I am extremely grateful for our founding documents which clearly acknowledge Almighty God and clearly acknowledge our dependence on Almighty God and as you read the prayers of people like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln it is obvious that there was a faith and a dependence on God to move in this nation and while I am grateful for that ladies and gentlemen just because we had a founding of this nation that received the hand of God and the blessings of God Our generation has to stand on its own two feet. Too many leaders and too many people are allowing our leaders to somehow live on our past. And we are failing to recognize that we are accountable for what happens in our generation Our leaders are accountable for what happens in our generation. That's why it's important to know what will our leaders do on the issue of the sanctity of human life. What will our leaders do when it comes to the issue of the sanctity of biblical marriage? What will our leaders do when it comes to the issue of national debt? What will our leaders do when it comes to preserving religious freedom in this country so we'll continue to be able to meet on a Friday night in this community without fear of having this meeting shut down. Those decisions are critical to whether God's hand of blessing will be upon this nation or whether God removes His hand. And that's why God asked, why have they provoked me to this anger? Why have they provoked me? Just because our founding fathers sought God's power. You and I in our generation cannot coast along somehow thinking we're secure because of that godliness back then. 
that escapes will cause us to escape the judgment of God in 2013. That's what Jeremiah is saying. And then there's one last question he asks, and I'm done. It's down in verse 22. You'll see at the last verse of that chapter. He said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And here's a question. Interesting, I've heard this question a lot over the last five years on every cable network in this country. Why then is there no recovery? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? How many of you have heard that question asked sometime in the last five years on the news or in the newspaper or somewhere? Why is there no recovery? Can I see a show of hands? How many people have heard folks in this country asking about the recovery? Where's the recovery? Why is there no recovery? When's the recovery coming? (laughs) Jeremiah asked that question thousands of years ago to the people of God. You see, there were those in Jeremiah's day who treated the issues of of sin before God and the miseries of the nation as just trivial matters. Didn't really matter. Live and let live. Everybody do your own thing, just don't hurt anybody. In fact, he gives an example of it in verse 11. I I didn't read verse 8 through 13. I challenged you to do that later, but I will call your attention to verse 11 because it's a great example of, of what happened in this time. It says, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, get this, slightly. Or another word used there is superficially. Well, how did they heal her hurt superficially? Well, here's how. Saying peace. Peace, when there is no peace. You know what that means in modern language? It's spelled T-O-L-E-R-A-N-C-E. Tolerance. Tolerance. Now listen, we should respect other people. We should show them the love of Christ. We should show them the love of an eternal God. But ladies and gentlemen, if you believe in the God of Scripture, then you understand that love, real love, cannot turn a blind eye to the reality of sin without calling it what it is, confronting it for what it is, and lovingly sharing truth for what it is. We're watching 
a movement in this nation that is years, really decades, decades old by a homosexual agenda in this country that has continued to push further and further and further till we now have a generation of young people that believe anybody that doesn't just accept a homosexual lifestyle as just like any other lifestyle and certainly would never call it sinful a younger generation says if you believe that it is sinful or whatever call it sin then you're a bigot you don't love people you don't care about people we've turned everything upside down because the truth is the person who just pats somebody living in open unconfessed blatant sin and pats them on the back and says peace peace when there is no peace you don't love that person you don't care if they die in their sin and spend eternity in a devil's hell. You say, well, Mark, I just, I just don't think Jesus would, would operate. Let me tell you how Jesus operated now that you bring that up. When Jesus met the woman at the well, can I take you there for just a minute? And he's talking to her about living water. He's meeting her right where she is. They're having this conversation. And the woman, that's by the way, found over there in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And, and he's talking to her back and forth. And they're having conversation. He's got her convinced, finally, that he knows about some living water. And she's thinking, dude, I do not want to keep coming down that mountain filling his pot up and carrying it on my head back up that mountain. If he, he's just said he can give me some water that I will never thirst again, give me some of that water. That's what she said. That was her line. Give me that water. I've often said every Baptist preacher in America would have whipped out a membership card, handed it to her and said, if you'll sign right here, we'll get you on the roll and send you a newsletter this week. She was right there. Jesus had her right there. You know what his next line was? Or shall I remind you? He said, go get your husband. Well, she just sort of recoiled back. My husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the dude you're shacking up with now ain't your husband. Now, that's Mark's paraphrase, but I'm just telling you, that's what it says in the original Greek. He said, you speak truth. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. Now, you know what modern America would say? Why did he have to go and bring that up? Why? I mean, he had her on that living water thing. He, he could have brought her right to the, the throne of salvation. 
right then and there. Why do you have to go bring up all of that trash, all of that dirt, all of that nastiness? I'll tell you why. Because not a single one of us in this room have ever tasted a drop of living water until we first came face to face with our sin. If you joined a church, and there's lots of people that do this, you joined a church and never came face to face with your sin, I got news for you. You got your name on the church roll, but that's not going to mean a hill of beans when your name's missing in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because only those who repent of their sin, the Bible says, ever really come to know and experience the grace and the fullness of Christ in his salvation. Jeremiah, in verse 11 of chapter 8, is saying, there are people that are treating this sin stuff far too trivial and are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. But you know what, Jeremiah? The prophets of God weren't like that. No, the the prophets of God were keenly aware of the evil in their time, so much so that the prophet of God, like Jeremiah, took the sins and the sorrow of the people on himself and made them his own. The prophet of God, the preacher of God, was so serious about the powerful responsibility that came with the role of prophet. That's the reason he asked in the first sentence, is there no balm in Gilead? By the way, you can circle that phrase, balm of Gilead. That is a symbol of the moral healing power. And you know what the great question of verse 22 is? In 2013, it's the same as the hard question that was asked to Israel that day. Do the very people, the very nation that was blessed of God to show the world the power of redemption have no medicine anymore to cure your own diseases? And do you have no one left to apply the medicines? You see, tonight, the question of the American pulpit, the question to every church in this state and every church in this nation and around the world is, are you and I going to preach for popularity? Are we going to preach for political correctness? Are we going to preach for itchy ears? Or are we going to commit to stand in the house of God and proclaim the Word of God to the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God and be willing to pay the price Whatever it is. A price that has led pastors in Great Britain and pastors in Canada just to our north to be arrested and pay fines and spend time in prison 
because they preached Romans chapter 1 that homosexuality is a sin and an abomination before God. And because of the laws passed in Great Britain, because of the laws passed in Canada, pastors have gone to prison. Just in case you haven't heard, there have been bills filed in the United States Congress with the very same wording of those very same laws. We just thank God that they haven't made it out of where they were introduced. We've got to have pastors and preachers, though. Pastors and preachers have got to have men and women in their church that will take it so seriously that they will stand with them. You see, I fear there's not many that are left that are willing to pay the price, whatever it costs. That's why I've always been blessed by knowing enough of U.S. history to know in this great country that it's been pastors, spiritual leaders that were at the founding of this nation. Unless you never heard where most of the gunpowder was stored and hidden during the American Revolution, it was in the churches. The pastors hid it there. Many of you here have heard of the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? You've heard about that? He rode on that horse. He went running, riding through the streets of Boston. You know what he was doing? He was yelling, the British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. But what many modern revisionist historians have failed to tell you is where he was headed that night. When he was crying, the British are coming. You know where he was going? He was going to the house of his pastor. His pastor's name was Jonas Clark. You know who Paul Revere was going to warn? Pastor Clark. The British are coming. Why would he go to warn his pastor? Because the British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming to incarcerate you. The British are coming even to execute you. Why would you care about a preacher named Jonas Clark? Check the history. Jonas Clark was one of those preachers who stood in the pulpits in this country when they were colonies and preached unapologetically the importance of freedom for this nation. 
He was one of the first pastors that stood and cried out for this nation to rise up and break away from Great Britain. Well, what does that have to do with Paul Revere warning him that the British were coming? Just this simple fact that when Jonas Clark was preaching the importance of freedom for this nation, only 30% of the colonists agreed with that position. When Jonas Clark stood to preach about freedom, 70% of the colonists weren't willing to agree to perhaps lay down their lives that freedom would ring. You and I have been blessed to experience religious freedom in this country for all the generations of this nation because of the pulpits in this country that refused to be silent but stood for truth and for freedom that we would be one nation under God that we could be one nation where we had been given inalienable rights by the hand of our Creator that we would be one nation that knew that it was only by the hand of the Almighty that such unbelievable odds would have been overcome. See, I believe tonight that there is a deep need for revival in America. But I'm wondering if we're desperate enough. There's a deep need for revival in America. But I'm wondering if you and I are willing to come tonight and get on this altar and demand nothing of God but in silence accept His judgment and confess our sin as the cause. I really wonder tonight if we're willing to hold people accountable and if our nation's leaders will stand on their own two feet for what is right. And I'm wondering if the pulpits like this one and like mine in Charlotte and like others across this land will have the courage to stand whatever it costs us. Until we get the answers to those questions, don't look for revival. Would you bow your heads right where you are? Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. And I'm just going to ask you right where you are tonight just to stop for just a moment. 
I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And they're going to lead us in just a moment in time of invitation. But you know, more important than what is sung or even said in these next few moments, what's more important is what you and I are going to do with the Word of God that has been placed before us. Your pastor made it clear that any true awakening is going to be grounded and founded in the Word of God. You've read Jeremiah chapter 8 for yourself tonight. You don't even have to take my word for it. You've seen it in black and white. The questions couldn't be any clearer. Why? 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 I wonder if tonight you'd be willing to leave your seat as these musicians begin to sing and just come and get on this old-fashioned altar. Just make an altar right here, all along the front. And begin this meeting tonight. You've got three days here, three nights. And maybe just tonight you'd come and get on this altar to begin this series of meetings and say, God, help me answer those questions. Help me answer those questions in my own life tonight. God, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I'm just coming to you in silence and in mercy, seeking you. I accept the judgment. My sin is to blame. Father, please bring revival. Please. Would you just quietly stand to your feet right where you are? Father in heaven, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in worship, we respond to you. We simply respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray.